It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Two moms looking for inspiration wherever wherever we we can can find it. it. Hello, and welcome to episode 119 of the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. I am Colleen. And And I'm Teresa. Is my co host. <laughs> Teresa. I always have the button. <laughs> and we have some inspiration to share. Teresa is going to talk about an early civil rights pioneer, Mary McLeod Bethune, and Steve Gleason, a football player who was diagnosed with ALS, an absolutely horrible disease, and continues to fight for other ALS patients. I am going to talk about Rabia Chaudhry. So there is something for everyone to get inspired. Thank you for joining us. So last time we were talking about Girl Scout cookies. Correct. And I assumed that since you have two girls, you would know that when they started. Um, no. <laughs> no so I, I have sold them before. Like, yes. So I looked it up. 1917. Wow. 1917. Over 100 which, years. Yeah. I um, And that they started to like do what they do now to finance troop activities. Back in 1922, they were selling. Do you want to know how much they were selling them for? I don't even know if I want to know. 25 or 30 cents per dozen. I think they're $5 a box now. Yeah. And probably fewer in there <laughs> right. than back in the day. Right. Still delicious, though. Yeah. So over the weekend, I watched The Swimmers. It's on Netflix right now. Oh. I've been wanting okay. to watch it. It's very good. And it's about Yusra Mardini and her sister, Sarah. Okay. Which I talked about in episode 43. So it was kind of fun to watch and actually... A lot of ties in with the book. They did a good job oh, great. following along with the book for the most part. So that was really good. I think everyone should watch that. I'm actually shocked, being not a sports person, how much I actually enjoy sports documentaries. <laughs> I'm shocked, but I'll have oh, to watch funny. that one. It's good. It's not a documentary, but it oh, is, okay. it, it's a good movie. Okay. And then I'm also listening back in episode um, 113, I talked about Bono. And his book, Surrender, which I already had loved, but I'm listening to the audio version now. And he actually reads his book, and then it has, like, little pieces of the songs and, like, different things that are in it. I love that. So I, if people are going to read the book, I say read with air quotes, I think they, I almost think this is the one time that they should listen to it, his audio version, because it was so I do love you, too. Yeah, me, too. So that sounds great. Yeah. I think you should check it out. So back when I was researching Coretta Scott King for episodes 114 and 115, I learned that Coretta had two idols, Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary McLeod Bethune. As I mentioned in the Coretta Scott King episode, I didn't know who Mary McLeod Bethune was. I did have her on a list okay. of someone I wanted to learn about, but I didn't know who she was. I do not know who she is either. <laughs> um, but I'm so glad, and I'm glad I get to tell you, because yes. this woman was amazing and tough. Most of the time, people think of the civil rights movement in America as occurring in the 1950s and 60s. And while many advances were achieved during that period, the civil rights movement started well before the 50s. One earlier activist was Mary Jane McLeod Bethune. That is a mouthful, just her Yes, name. it is. 
But after learning about her, it's easy to see why the wife of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and a strong civil rights leader in her own right, Coretta Scott King, was inspired by this woman. Mary McLeod Bethune was born July 10, 1875, and she was the 15th child out of 17. I can't imagine. Can you? Oh, oh, crazy. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Her parents and many of her older siblings had been slaves in her town in Maysville, South Carolina. Although now free, her mother still worked for her former owner, and the father still picked cotton on the plantation. They lived in a simple log cabin, and her parents did extra jobs to try and gain their independence from working essentially the same jobs they had had while they were slaves, but then they were getting paid for it. Yep, I remember hearing about that. <clears throat> so her mother, Patsy, did laundry. Speaking of, you, you were laughing about the <laughs> 17 kids and all the laundry there. Yep. But her mother, Patsy, did laundry for people in town, and sometimes Mary was allowed to go with her mom to deliver the white people's wash. On one occasion, she accompanied her mother to a white children's nursery to deliver the laundry. Mary was enthralled by the toys and the books. She picked up a book and opened it and was fascinated by the words and drawings. A white child snatched the book away from her and scolded her for picking up the book since she could not read. At that moment, Mary decided the biggest difference between white people and black people was the ability to read and write. She became determined to learn how to do both. Determined to learn, Mary walked five miles each day to attend the one-room black schoolhouse in Maysville, which was run by Presbyterian missionaries. Her teacher helped her get a scholarship to the Scotia Seminary. She wanted to be a missionary, but was told they didn't need black missionaries, so she decided to be a teacher. Okay. She began teaching in 1896, working at schools funded by missionaries. She was inspired by Lucy Craft Laney, a missionary to support the education of girls and to improve the lives of the black community. And she met her husband, Albert Bethune, while teaching and married him in 1898. They moved to run a mission school in Florida in 1899, and they would have one son named Albert. The senior Albertus would later abandon the family. Wow. Yeah. And die of tuberculosis. So poor Mary. Right. Mary eventually ended up in Daytona, Florida, which was booming. She rented a small house and filled it with desks and benches that she acquired through the charity or made herself. She started the Educational Industrial Training School for Negro Girls. Once again, mouthful. Right. And her son, Albert, was the only boy. That poor kid. <laughs> I, I don't think he was sad about that. I, I just have a feeling. <laughs> I hope not, because that would, that would be rough. You're right. Church members helped raise money for the school. They made ink from elderberry juice, which I remember um, Dolly Parton, like she used stuff, stuff like that for her makeup when she oh. was a kid because she wasn't... Her, her grandpa didn't want her wearing makeup. makeup, yeah. And they used burnt pieces of wood as pencils. Within a year, 30 girls were being taught at the school. Mary Bethune later wrote, I considered cash money as the smallest part of my resources. I had faith in a loving God, faith in myself, and a desire to serve. Mary also integrated herself in the wealthier white residence of Daytona. She invited influential white men to sit on the board of the school which helped legitimize the school and gain access to funding. The school covered regular subjects such as English and mathematics, but they also covered practical skills such as dressmaking, cooking, and skills to help the young girls become self-sufficient. Did you have to take home ec in school? I did. 
and and I did sewing, and yeah. I don't remember any of it, and still can't sew. <laughs> <laughs> As the school grew, she added lessons in business and science. The school eventually merged with a boys' school, forming the Bethune Cookman College, a co-ed junior college. Mary McLeod Bethune was the president. The library built at this college was the first publicly accessible library to Black Floridians. This would be enough to get Mary McLeod Bethune in the history books, but this was only one of her many accomplishments. When one of her students became sick, she took the child to Daytona's only hospital, but was told the girl couldn't be treated because... She was black. Yep. Mary didn't take that answer and talked to the hospital. She finally talked him into accepting her student as a patient, and the hospital did the bare minimum to treat her student and only allowed her a bed on an outside porch. Oh, my goodness. Luckily, it was Florida. I hope it was warm. I love your silver lining. It was after that experience that Mary decided Daytona needed a black hospital. I love how she, you know, she knew they needed a school. so Saw a need and went for it. So now they need a hospital. She raised the money for the building and equipment, talked white doctors and nurses to work there part-time, helped get black women to be trained as nurses, and created a working hospital accessible to Daytona's black population. This hospital carried on until the 1960s when black citizens in Daytona were finally allowed to go to the main hospital. 1960s. Yes. It wasn't that long ago. I know. After the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, allowing women to vote. Really? It's crazy to <laughs> Again, me that, that barely 100 years. <laughs> Mary took part in campaigns to help black voters vote. Many states still had laws that made it difficult for blacks to vote, including poll taxes and literacy tests. I've looked at some of those. Oh, I wouldn't pass them. Really? Yeah. They're crazy hard. Wow. Crazy hard. Mary helped fundraise money to allow blacks to pay the poll taxes and tutored them so that they could pass the literacy tests. She also helped plan massive voter registration drives to gain more black voters. Her work in getting black Floridians registered to vote led to her being threatened multiple times by the Ku Klux Klan. As her reputation grew, so did interest in Mary McLeod Bethune. President Calvin Coolidge invited her to attend a conference on child welfare in 1928. In 1930, President Herbert Hoover appointed her to a White House Committee on Children's Health. Did you know that his childhood house, Herbert Hoover's, like, is in Newburgh? No, I had no idea. I need to go see it. Yes. Because that's, like, right across the way from us. Yes. President Franklin Roosevelt started the National Youth Administration to help young people who were 16 to 25 to get into school or find work. Mary was appointed by President Roosevelt to lead the Division of Negro Affairs, part of the National Youth Administration, the first female black division head. She helped get students through educational programs, find jobs, and got black colleges to be part of the civilian pilot training program that trained some of the first black pilots in the country. This woman was just amazing. I know. I was just she had her hand like, in everything. Yeah. Like, how did she find the time? <laughs> I know. Mary McLeod Bethune had become close friends with Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. At a conference about human welfare in 1938, Eleanor Roosevelt, who Amy talked about in episode 15, insisted that Mary be seated next to her despite segregation laws. Bethune's friendship with Eleanor gave her tremendous access to the Roosevelts and helped draw attention to issues facing black Americans. With her help, Roosevelt formed the Federal Council of Negro Affairs, often called Roosevelt's Black Cabinet, to advise the president on issues of particular concern to black Americans. She also co-founded the United Negro College Fund, 
which I feel like that's been on so yeah. many commercials yeah. for my entire life. Yes, I have heard of that. Which gives many different scholarships, mentorships, and job opportunities to young black students. And Mary McLeod Bethune sadly died of a heart attack in 1955. It's no wonder she died of a heart attack with everything she was doing. Talk about the stress with all of that. But just knowing, just so fulfilling, though. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I hope she, when she died, she felt accomplished. She knew that, and she, knew that yeah, she had helped. Made, made a difference. So many people. Yeah. The Atlanta Daily World newspaper said of her life, one of the most dramatic careers ever enacted at any time upon the stage of human activity. The Pittsburgh Courier wrote, in any race or nation, she would have been an outstanding personality and made a noteworthy contribution because her chief attribute was her indomitable soul. Bethune had a talent for making alliances with both important black and white figures and used those relationships to continue to further the goal of black rights and equality. She valued education as a way to level the playing field and believed everyone, regardless of race or stature, should be able to get an education. So it's no wonder that Coretta Scott King admired her as a role model. Yes. Because she's certainly one of mine now. Yes. I'm glad I finally know who... She is. Yes, me too. When possible, I like to try and watch some of the documentaries that they're showing yes. at my work. Oh, yes. It gives me, you know, one more thing that I can kind of have a connection with in classes. Yes, um, a great idea. When I saw Gleason on their playbill, it piqued my curiosity. Well, that's after I found out that it wasn't about Jackie Gleason, oh. but about a man named Steve Gleason. Then I found out he came from the Pacific Northwest. He was from Spokane. So then I was even more curious. Watching the documentary was brutal and sobering in so many ways. I mean, to the point that I did suggest that they take it off at work because it was heart-wrenching. But Steve has ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And while it's taken away the life he had previously... He's very much alive, living his mantra, no white flags, which I love. I'm going to steal that. Yes. ALS is often referred to as Lou Gehrig disease after the famous baseball player who died of the rare disease. While Lou Gehrig was not the first to be diagnosed with ALS, his illness brought the disease to the attention of the public. Right. Gehrig played first base for the New York Yankees from 1923 to 1939. He was a great hitter as well as an excellent first baseman. He had six World Series wins and was a Major League All-Star for seven consecutive seasons. He's consistently ranked among the greatest baseball players of all times. I do not know anything about baseball except... Me neither, because so, we, I um, think, already established sports. So I'm sure yes. that that's, those are huge things, mm-hmm. but... Another interesting fact about Gehrig, his family immigrated to New York from Germany, and Lou didn't start speaking English until he was five. Oh, wow. His mother, this I found super interesting, meddled in all of his romances on purpose to keep him at home. (laughs) And she was pretty successful because he didn't move out of his parents' house despite being a major league baseball player until he was 30. 30 years old. His then-girlfriend, Eleanor Twitchell, helped him, you know, get out of his, from under his mother. She got Lou his first agent and helped him get to be the first athlete on a Wheaties box. Oh, wow. I I know. I I know I didn't know that. He would later marry Eleanor, 
Lou's performance in the 1938 season started to decline, and he complained of being tired all the time. By the 1939 season, he had lost speed and coordination. The decline was significant enough that fans and reporters were starting to question whether something was wrong with Gehrig. After playing 2,130 consecutive games, he finally took himself out of the lineup and saw a doctor at the Mayo Clinic. After six days of testing, they confirmed that Lou Gehrig had ALS, which is what they had commonly called creeping paralysis. Yes. I think when I saw something on Stephen Hawking, mm-hmm. it was called creeping. that when he was first oh. diagnosed as well. Hmm. I had never heard of that, but I haven't read anything about Stephen Hawking either. So, Two days later, Gehrig announced his retirement from baseball in a farewell address At a full Yankee stadium, Gehrig made a speech where he said, Fans, for the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. I just love love how he faced such a, a devastating diagnosis. Right. Just by looking what he had. Gratitude. Yes. yes. But he was looking what he still had, not what he lost. And that's very much like Steve Gleason. Lou Gehrig would die from the disease just before his 38th birthday. Oh, my goodness. So young. And I knew very little about the disease besides that it's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease after a famous athlete. But according to the Gleason documentary, most people diagnosed with ALS will die within the first three years. Steve teases that he's eight years past his expiration date since he sat it since 2011. That's one thing that I loved about the documentaries that I watched with him. He has a very good sense of humor. I think as our technology increases, hopefully that time frame gets longer and longer. And I hope that they can improve the quality of life during that time frame, too. Good point. Come on, science. Yes. So uh, while I'm moved by Steve's heart, the documentary, both Gleason and there was an episode of A Football Life, they showed how amazing Steve is. I had to go and make sure that he's still alive and well before I could finish the documentary. (laughs) So Steve is still amazing, but his team shines just as bright as he does. The members of Team Gleason are every bit the hero that Steve is, especially his wife, Michelle, and his caregiver friend, Blair Casey. Side note, I found an exceptional podcast called Sorry, I'm Sad that included an interview with Steve. Sorry, I'm Sad is a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Kelsey Snow blogs and podcasts about her family's journey with ALS as her husband, Chris, was diagnosed in 2019. She podcasts from Calgary where she lives with her husband and two children. And when she was chatting with Steve, I love how he referred to his caregivers and family as his walk on water living care team because that's how they make him feel. Right. You know, that he's able to walk on water. Like I said, Steve grew up in Spokane, Washington, and apparently didn't play football until he was a freshman in high school. Wow. Usually I feel like those guys have been playing since they were five years old. I know. The summer between 8th and ninth grade, his mom said that his feet grew three sizes, and he decided to go out for football. He lettered in football and baseball and ended up a Cougar with a football scholarship at Washington State University. His coach said that people were naturally drawn to his energy, his drive, determination, and his ability to get everything out of every day. He was fast, positive, and never complained. He was also brainy. 
Steve was on the Pac-10 all-academic team three times. He also helped take the Cougars to the first Rose Bowl they had in almost 70 years. Oh, wow. 70 years. I know. That's amazing. That's a long dry spell. That's a long dry spell. Yes. After college, he signed on with the New Orleans Saints as a free agent. Now, this, I don't understand the free agent Mm-mm. and all of that. And the safe, he's a safety and okay. whatnot. But anyway, he's, Somebody he's signed will on. understand that. Yes. One teammate said that there was not a more respected person on the field than Steve Gleason. He battled and played with heart. Scott Fujita noticed this guy with curly long hair out on the football field practicing yoga. And he asked who it was. And you can figure <laughs> it was Steve. And Fujita would say that he knew right away they were going to get along. <laughs> um, I do eventually want to do a whole thing on Scott Vegeta's family because he was abandoned. He played, obviously, for the Saints. He was abandoned as a child and adopted by a Japanese-American father and white mother. His father was actually born in a re- relocation center wow. as his Japanese father, a 442nd Infantry Regiment combat hero. His family was interned during World War II. But that's going to have to be another episode. Yes. But anyway, this is his Sounds friend. Fun. When New Orleans was struggling after Hurricane Katrina, slowly they were putting back the pieces. Some say that Steve helped expedite the process a bit. The Superdome took a year to rebuild after Katrina, but on September 26, 2006, Gleason blocked a punt from the opposing team for a teammate to recover the ball and score a touchdown. Wow. So it was the first quarter of the first game in New Orleans in nearly 21 months. I do know that, that touchdowns are important. <laughs> yeah. and so the Saints not only had that first, you know, that win back, but they'd have the, one of the most successful seasons in history, even going to the NFC championship that year. It was a sign for the community that they were rebuilding and in ways they would come back stronger. The fans adored Steve because they saw that he attributed that block and they saw it as a sign that they were going to come, come back and they were going to be all right. In July 2012, Drew Brees uncovered and announced a statue with the play known as Rebirth. Oh. Which I think is, he and Steve kind of teased, he's like, the last time I saw myself as a, you know, 10 foot was never. <laughs> so he just has such a good sense of humor. Yes. Living up to his total free spirit reputation, Steve retired in 2006, and a couple of years later, he would marry his soulmate, Michelle. She, too, has such excitement and enthusiasm for living that's so strong it comes across on the TV screen. Instead of a honeymoon, they went on this adventure, an around-the-world odyssey type of adventure. They traveled to Greece, Turkey, Nepal, Indonesia, Thailand, Hawaii, and Australia. It was how he lived life, just how he played football, all in. Fast forward 18 months into their marriage, so not that long. No. And Steve started to get a little clumsy where he had never been at all before. They went through eight months of testing, looking at his speech and gait in an attempt to rule out ALS. I thought that was interesting because they confirmed with Lou Gehrig like right away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So eight months of testing... Talk about brutal, just wondering. It's a lot of appointments. Yeah. Instead of ruling it out, obviously, it was confirmed that he did, in fact, have ALS. Six weeks after they found out about ALS, Michelle found out she was pregnant. That's the reason for his five-year video journal, which helped make the documentary. Okay. He wasn't making it for the documentary. He was making it for his son. 
You didn't know how long he had to live, and he Ugh. wanted to make sure that his son knew him. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, Steve is still around for his son, Rivers, and daughter, Gray. The kids and Michelle are clearly the light of his life. After the diagnosis, in typical Steve and Michelle style, they decided to live life their own way. Where many would be preparing to die, they did just the opposite and prepared to live. Which I love. I do too. Steve went back to school and got his MBA. Wow. They tricked out their van and nicknamed (laughs) it Iron Horse, which was Lou Gehrig's nickname. Oh, okay. They traveled for the next five to seven months. Keep in mind, she's pregnant. Um, And he's... (laughs) I mean, yeah. I would think that there is some treatment yeah. that they're getting. He's starting to use a cane during right. during all of that in his speeches. You know, it, it was clear, but right. the van became the symbol for Team Gleason. Team Gleason at the time of the documentary had given $20 million in adventure technology, equipment, and care services to over 30,000 people. So it's no wonder that in 2019, he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal for ALS Awareness. Around-the-clock care is super expensive. Yes. Giving people the ability to communicate again is out of reach for so many people yes. as well. I, I didn't know that until this documentary. Steve's able to use retinal scan technology. Basically, it's amazing. So the documentary is worth it just to watch for this. They yes. use their eyes to spell out things. He also banked his voice in preparation. He knew he would lose his voice. What so, a wonderful idea, though, for his kids I know. to be able to hear their own yes. dad's voice rather than an electronic yeah. voice. His kids watching just how Rivers adores his daddy is just the sweetest thing. He, you know, just never giving up and doing whatever he could to fight back. Michelle and his caretaker, Blair, are equally amazing. Blair had worshipped Steve back in the day. <laughs> so um, back in college, the Saints were holding some type of training on you know their field. Right. And uh, Blair went back and told his dad how excited he was because he got to meet Steve Gleason. <laughs> Little it. did he know that he'd end up being an integral part, integral part of Team Gleason. He'd be destiny. It it really was. And the thing that's interesting is he has the long curly hair just like Steve did before. So this is... Following his idol. Yes. This guy helped carry Steve and another ALS patient through the Andes in search of Machu Picchu. I loved seeing the sense of humor with both Blair and Steve... Well, actually, just all of them. They all have a really good sense of humor. But the documentary doesn't hold back with Steve needing constant care means people have to help him go to the bathroom, clean up when he's had accidents, feed him through a tube in his stomach. They have to help him shower. I mean, basically his body is completely dead weight. Yes. So it's a good thing that Blair is super strong, both physically and mentally. Michelle is the one that has just blown me away. The love she has for this guy. I can't imagine the fear and fatigue. Yes. Fatigue. This woman must experience. But she, like Steve, presses on. I found it interesting that she noted in the documentary that she didn't want to be a saint, which I kind of thought it was an interesting play of words. But um, she just, she wanted to just get through this. She wanted to survive. Right. Right. So she wasn't looking to, you know, be setting a great example or anything. She just wanted to make it. Well, but it is just love. Yeah. Yeah. 
At the same time, it was clearly she was moved one night when a woman who had been afraid of heights, well, probably still was after this, she climbed Machu Picchu the day before Steve. Okay. And she snapped a picture of her at the top with her no white flags shirt. That is fantastic. I know. So Steve cried, Michelle noted, that it was moments like that that reminded them how much of a difference Steve and his team were making. Someone offered to carry Rivers, you know, the kiddo, in mm-hmm. a pack. And in his good friend, um, Scott, uh, from the Saints, along with a group of superstars, got both Steve and Kevin Swan to Machu Picchu on a goat trail with an wow. elevation of 9,000 mm-hmm. feet. It's quite the climb. Yeah. And very intense mm-hmm. with especially these, yeah, it's just craziness how narrow some of these things right. were and steep they're well, on the elevation change yeah on top yeah. of all of it well and they had to prepare for that like right. steve it was like an astronaut mission they had to get his body oh. acclimated to oh. the pressure because he has all that equipment on with oh that's um, true that's true so their goal was to be out of the jungle by nightfall which i would make sure that happens yes. because <laughs> yes i'm scared <laughs> but with mechanical issues you know because they have these special chairs They were constantly having to MacGyver the chairs, like using bamboo, rope, zip ties, whatever they could just to keep going. And even at that, they were going like a mile per hour. Oh, my goodness. So they had to go 11 miles. So this was a long, long day. Mm -hmm. And no choice but to keep moving forward. Right. And it just reminded me that Steve and thousands of you know, others are in the same scenario with no choice but to keep moving forward. Turning back just isn't even an option. Right. There's this school that watches a video about Steve every week before their game, which oh, I think is adorable. To them. Steve is an exceptional example of living in the moment and refusing to quit. Back when he was a toddler, I guess he had casts on his feet. Oh. I, I can't remember what the condition was, but... He broke one off, and his mom had decided, you know what, if he's that determined to take these casts off, then we're going to figure it out. So he had those, then he played professional ball, and now he's facing ALS. His reminder to exhaust yourself in the mission, be productive, and live with purpose, I just love. He presented his smart technology house at a meeting with the UN because ALS is worldwide. Yes. I mean, it's a problem all over. They have definitely done their part in raising awareness for ALS, and Team Gleason has also helped improve so many lives to bridge the gap until science finds a cure, like we were saying. Team Gleason worked to advocate for legislation to help patients with ALS. Steve was fortunate enough, like I said, to have sufficient resources from his career to be able to afford the equipment necessary to make himself. Yes. So 24-hour care. And he could afford that, but not everybody's able to do that. Not all those who suffer from ALS have those resources, and insurance companies weren't required to pay for devices to allow people with ALS to communicate with others. Now, mind you, they can't write. No. 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 So this is uh, just cruel in my mind that that we wouldn't offer that. Right. The Steve Gleason Act of 2015 required that Medicare cover the expense of eye-tracking speech equipment devices for individuals who require them. This covers not only individuals with ALS, but any person who cannot communicate without this technology. It's life-altering for people. And I believe that ALS is one of the conditions where you automatically get approved to be on Medicare. I would hope so. That that would go through 
um, that that would be an approval mm-hmm. process through Medicare because I there's would, a couple things that automatically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really hope so because it's such a brutal, mm-hmm. cruel, cruel disease. Um, but for people that couldn't otherwise communicate with their loved ones, doctors, or other people, like at the grocery store, I mean, right. you just need to communicate. Right. Just think of how isolating it would be not to be able to communicate with other people, let alone your friends and family. Children. Yeah. I know that Colleen and I would really, really struggle. <laughs> we would suffer. <laughs> More recently, in December 2022, President Biden signed legislation that would allow ALS patients to get access to life-prolonging medication and authorized $100 million in federal funds for research for treatment in neurodegenerative diseases, including ALS. I'm just in awe of Teve Gleason for both the work they've done and the work they continue to do. The scene in the documentary where Steve is exhausted in Machu Picchu, right before Machu Picchu, because before they go, he's like on a cobblestone, you know, not only traveling there before they even started with it, but he's in his chair on a cobblestone drive down for their dinner. He's just physically and mentally exhausted. Right. And Michelle's concerned because she is worried he's going to break down. Mm -hmm. The whole scene turns around when Jenny Gonzalez, the young woman that I shared who was scared of heights, approached Steve and told him how much he inspired her to do hard things. So that simple gesture was precisely what he needed, yet she had no idea. She was just going to, you know, someone she really admired. You just have to watch it. Steve has pointed out that his life isn't easy, but it's awesome. Talk about an amazing outlook. He has low points for sure, and the documentaries shared a few of them. But I love that his friend and caretaker, Blair, points out that Steve is a constant reminder to love life, to live life. Often, Michelle would draw while they were, like you said, she spent a lot of times in in hospitals. Right. And she would draw, and her artwork is just amazing. Pearl Jam has her work on one of their albums. Oh, I had no idea. I know. Eddie Vedder was interviewed by Steve Gleason, and their admiration for each other is just so sweet. Very evident. Michelle's art, like I said, is beautiful, but... It just inspired me because it was an example of what beauty can come through such ugly times. Right. So it was just her expression. I I don't know. It just was very sweet. But probably the most inspiring thing to me was Steve reminding us to be productive and to live with purpose. He said, you know, he was just a ball player before, Mm -hmm. but ALS gave him a true purpose. Tough things in life are going to happen. We can either resist it or accept it and learn from it. Be in the moment. You know, he talks about taking it one day at a time, one moment at a time, one second at a time if you need to. But just never quit. And I just love the no white flags. Just never give up. I heard this really cool, and I know I'm going to massacre it, quote once that said, pain is inevitable, Mm -hmm. suffering is optional. Yes, yes. It's not exactly right, but I I feel like that's really... That's true. It's your outlook. Right. He could have totally just stopped being in the public eye and just felt sorry for himself. Right. And no one would blame him for that. Right. I agree. Yeah. Gleason right now is on Amazon Prime. Okay, good to know. So I think people should watch that. And I found on YouTube a football life... It originally aired back in November of 2013, but that was a really good documentary, too. I loved this quote by Steve Gleason. 
Life is difficult, not just for me or other ALS patients. Life is difficult for everyone. Finding ways to make life meaningful and purposeful and rewarding, doing activities that you love and spending time with the people you love. I think that's the meaning of this human experience. Agree. Teresa, do you remember a time without podcasts? (laughs) It's been a bit. I know. It's been a bit. If you don't remember a time without podcasts, you're much younger than we are. (laughs) That's what I'm going to say. I do remember the first time I ever heard the term podcast. I okay, yeah. From a I'm friend wondering what Ken. it was. Okay, and he's he. I remember he found it on my iPhone. He showed me that I actually already had mm-hmm. the app. The iPhone came with that, and he said to me, "You have to listen to Serial." I was just going to say that's the first yeah. podcast everybody was talking about. But I put it in as C E R E A L, <laughs> just so you know. And he was like, no, 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 Colleen. Oh, that's funny. S-E-R-I-A-L. Oh, which you and I both love true crime. We do. So it's funny that do. maybe you were hungry when yes. you put it in. <laughs> so I remember texting him the next day and saying, I've just binged seven episodes of Serial. I feel a little ashamed. I'm really not a binge <laughs> person. Even today, I, I don't yeah. binge watch a lot yeah. of stuff. Um so you may remember that the narrator and investigator of Serial is an NPR employee named Sarah Koenig. Believe it or not, I haven't listened to that podcast. Oh, I'm I'm one oh, that my if heart. something's so popular, then I like run the other way. I'm like, you know, oh. if it's if it's that popular, I don't want to have anything to do with oh. it. And that's why it took me a long time to get into Friends because I was like, no, oh. everyone loves Friends, so I will not. Wow. And then I finally started watching well, it. Well, this will like, be all new to you then. Yes. Okay. So that's good. Kind of good. Exciting. Yay. So the narrator and the investigator, her name is Sarah Koenig, and I always joke with my friends, oh, I love Sarah Koenig's voice, um, but actually. The investigation, it, it documents her inv- her investigation of a murder allegedly committed by a teenager in 1999. His name is Adnan Syed, of his ex-girlfriend, Hey Min Lee. And he was a teenager? Correct. I had no idea. Okay. Yes, he was. The person that brought this investigation to Sarah Koenig, mm-hmm. her name is Rabia Chaudhry. She was a family friend of the Syed family. Mm-hmm. And she had been carrying around Adnan's case file in her trunk for Hmm. years. Mm -hmm. You know, just pulling it out and working on it when she could. And it goes into more detail in Serial how it got to Sarah. But Sarah basically thought she was going to do one episode for NPR and Mm -hmm. ended up doing this. I think it's 12, 13 episodes. And I wonder how how long it took you to binge seven of those. It didn't take, it was very (laughs) short. That was the first time I had ever heard the name Rabia Chaudhry, but in the eight and a half years, which mm-hmm. I looked that up, eight and a half years since Serial debuted, I have followed Rabia and her amazing work she has done in the criminal justice system. I've listened to many interviews with Rabia. If you guys have ever heard Rabia's voice, it's very distinctive mm-hmm. and lovely. Mm-hmm. She's just got a very lovely voice. It was funny, she noted that in her Pakistani family, it was expected that she would become a doctor. And I guess in their family, that was the only option. You'd need to become a doctor. Yes. It wasn't because they needed the money or because they just... That was the best looking Mm. option. She did. They wanted the... the Yep, that was just their thing. Mm -hmm. She did end up in med school, but on a whim, she decided to take the LSAT. 
And she scored very high mm-hmm. on it. I didn't look up her score. Well, she went into med school. I'm sure she... Right. Yeah. And if you don't know what the LSAT mm-hmm. is, that's a test you, that essentially qualifies you for mm-hmm. law school. Mm-hmm. She got an amazing score, like I said. And before she knew it, her life direction had changed and she went to law school. To loop back to Serial, she was extremely grateful for this podcast because it did put Adnan's case you know, in, in full view. Mm-hmm. I believe that Serial has downloaded all over the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that for a fact. In almost every country that they're allowed to access the internet, mm-hmm. it's been downloaded. Mm-hmm. So it really put this in the front and center. But she always still felt like there was much of that, more of that story to tell. Mm-hmm. And so she started her own podcast. It was called Undisclosed with two other amazing attorneys, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller, which of course, I also listened to Undisclosed. <laughs> In case you were wondering, this podcast had over 400 million downloads. Oh, wow. Uh Undisclosed is the most popular and impactful wrongful conviction podcast in the Mm. world. This team has helped exonerate over a dozen defendants. Wow. Mm -hmm. And or found new evidence Uh to take these people back to court Uh or get back to court. One of these defendants was her own family friend, Adnan Syed who was released from custody in September 2022. So he was in prison then nine years or so. Or so. He was from, I'm trying to think if it was probably 2000, so mm-hmm. t- over 20 years. Oh, my gosh. He went in, I believe, as 19. Oh. Yeah. Thank goodness this, there this, are people, though, like her that are doing this. She's amazing. Today. Yeah. She's just smart and quick. Mm-hmm. This is a lot of mouthful coming up that I want to tell you about um, Rabia and what she's involved in. And I don't know if I'm going to say it all. But as I was reading through all of the things that she has her hands in or what she's done to help people, it's really across cultural boundaries and mm-hmm. religious boundaries. Mm-hmm. I noticed something here that she's been recipient of the 2015 Healing and Hope Award mm. by the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. She is currently a founding board member of the Inter-Jewish Muslim Alliance. So that's what I mean. Like she's she's across these Mm -hmm. different religions. She's Muslim and Mm -hmm. she has leadership trainings to help people understand racism in court, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. She also founded something called a Safe Nation Collaborative, a CVE training firm. And this, what I said before, it, it provides cultural competency training to law enforcement correctional, mm-hmm. and homeland security officials. She works with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice. I, I could just go on and on. Um, she's just a really amazing attorney in person. Mm-hmm. Every time I find out she's doing something new, I just have no choice but to listen. <laughs> no, no choice, choice whatsoever. but to listen to Rabia. Uh, well, now she, I'm going to have to. She's this. also an author. I've heard mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. just from people that interview her that she smells amazing oh and i've always been intrigued by that just so you know mm-hmm. random thoughts from yeah <laughs> random thoughts from colleen yep <clears throat> on top of all this rabia has also found the time to write books she's written two books one of them is called adnan story mm. and her newest book which i haven't read yet is called fatty fatty boom boom Fatty, fatty, boom, boom. A memoir on food, fat, and family growing up oh. in Pakistani oh. culture. <laughs> I just Actually, that I sounds really good. Yeah. She wrote this about herself on her website, yeah. and I loved it. She is owned by the cutest cat in the world, Mr. Oh. Beans, and can cook a five-course meal in under 90 minutes. 
When she grows up, she wants to be a renowned author of many books, a fearless traveler, and a mother of the first female American Muslim president of the United States. She's pretty sure it's all going to happen. Because she's also a mother, too, right? How does she do all of this? I don't know. Five course Well, I guess if she can do her five-course meal in 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. I need a list. I want to know. Yeah. Um, At this time, the Undisclosed podcast has come to an end. Mm. They still do updates every once Mm -hmm. in a while. You can still find Rabia everywhere if you cannot get enough of her, like me. She's on <laughs> RabiaChaudry.com. That's R-A-B-I-A-C-H-A-U-D-R-Y.com. On Instagram at at Rabia Squared 2. On Facebook as Rabia Chaudry. Also, she has a new podcast, and it's also, of course, one of my favorite podcasts called Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case. Oh. Enjoy. Fun. I have moments where I miss my old self, but I think anyone can get caught up in what we used to have. But at the same time, we can choose to focus on the beauty of now. Steve Gleason. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week. Meet you, Pichu.